0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is hosting uh, today's book forum. Most Americans uh, believe that uh, the right to property is sacred, and they have good reason to do so because the Constitution says nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. They think that their home is their castle, a phrase that stems from the 17th century jurist Lord Cook. Unfortunately, over the course of the 20th century, that right to private property has been slowly eroded by a series of decisions that have come from the state Supreme Courts and the U.S. Supreme Court, early on in the area of regulatory takings and, more recently, in the area of the full use of eminent domain, whereby government condemns a person's property not for use by the public, but rather to transfer the title to another private owner for the purpose of economic development. And that's exactly the story that we're here talk about today in the form of the case that reached the Supreme Court in 2005 by the name of Kilo v. City of New London, Connecticut. The case arose when the city sought to condemn Suzette Kilo's home and to transfer title to private developers to establish upscale uh, commercial and residential property. Suzette Kilo stood her ground. She fought it all the way to the Supreme Court. It was argued by Scott Bullock, who you'll be hearing from today. And in a bitterly divided 5-4 decision, the uh, property was turned over to the city. Suzette Kilo lost, but the Institute for Justice which uh, represented her uh, in the form of Scott uh, Bullock and uh, Dana Berliner, who is with us today, uh, took uh, the case to the public all across the country under the uh, direction of John Kramer, the Vice President for Communications at the Institute for Justice. And victory was achieved in state after state such that today some 43 states have tightened up their takings law and can no longer take property for public for private uh, development in the way they used to. These regulations vary from state to state, but it is a far better picture today than it was before this case reached the Supreme Court and created the firestorm that it did. All of this has been drawn together in a wonderful book that has just come out, which is what we're here to talk about today. It's called Little Pink House. Its author is Jeff Benedict, who will be our principal speaker today. And it is a real page-turner, as Publishers Weekly described it. Jeff is on a tour right now, and we're fortunate to have that tour begin here in Washington. They're going to New York after this. And uh, we're going to be hearing from Jeff at some length, about the book. Then we're going to hear from the heroine, Suzette Kilo, and then we're going to hear from the attorney who argued the case before the Supreme Court, Scott Bullock. I will introduce Suzette and Scott just before they speak. Now let me introduce Jeff. And after we are through at about one thirty or so, Jeff and Suzette will be available to sign copies of the book, which are available for purchase at a discount just outside. So please get your copy at a discount and have it signed by the author and the heroine herself. Now, let me introduce uh, uh, Jeff. He is uh, an award-winning investigative uh, journalist and best-selling author of seven books, um, including The Mormon Way of Doing Business, Out of Bounds, Pro and Cons, uh, Without Reservation. His articles have appeared... Uh, In Sports Illustrated, the Hartford Current, the Los Angeles Times, Village Voice, and the New York Times. He's appeared on all the major media, ABC, CBS News, NBC, Fox News, and so forth. Uh, He's been featured, his books have been featured on 60 Minutes. He's a graduate of uh, Eastern Connecticut State University. Uh, He has an M.A. in political science from Northeastern University and a law degree from the New England College of Law. Please welcome Jeff Benedict.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you to Cato for inviting us here and giving us the opportunity to be here. It's really an honor for for all of us to be here. Uh, And it's been an honor, frankly, to work on The Little Pink House it's a, I'm from New London. I was born there, and I was raised in towns right around New London. And I had watched this story unfold, uh, like most of us who live in or around New London. It was in our papers every day uh, for roughly seven years. And as this was going on, I was writing other books and covering other stories. And in the back of my mind, I kept hoping that no one else would write this book uh, before I got to it. Because to me, it was a just such a compelling story uh, that it, it needed to be a book. And uh, when the decks finally cleared for me, it was uh, around Thanksgiving of 2005. And I'm, unlike most journalists in the country who may have wanted to write this book, I could literally get in my car and drive five minutes and be in the Fort Trumbull neighborhood where this whole thing happened. And I knocked on the pink house door. Uh, I didn't know Suzette at the time. And uh, usually, as a journalist, when I'm going to approach somebody who I really want to do an interview with me, I, I prepare quite a bit. Uh, I research them. I prepare my approach. and I Because oftentimes, if you, if you mess it up, you may lose the opportunity to interview them. And so I had this terrific pitch uh, for Suzette. And I got to the door, and I was all ready to go, and she opened the door, and I said, Hi, I'm Jeff Benedict, and I'm an investigative journalist, and I'd like to... And she interrupted me right there, and she said, I know who you are. What took you so long? (laughs) And um, so started our relationship, and she invited me into this pink house that I had seen so often uh, on the news and in the paper. And for the next three hours, we sat at her kitchen table, and I asked her uh, invasive, probing questions, and I was trying to get a sense of how much she would tell me, how truthful she would be, how open she would be whether she would work for uh, a lead vehicle to tell the story. And I was convinced after three hours that she would. And she told me that she would cooperate. And uh, we left the house, and she walked me through the neighborhood. And at that time, there were still some houses there. Uh, The Supreme Court had handed down the ruling, but the ruling (coughs) hadn't been uh, executed yet. And so there were still all the holdouts from the case were still there. And uh, we walked it. And by the time I got back to my car, uh, I, in my mind, I knew what the title of this book would be, Little Pink House. It was very clear to me. And usually titles are one of the hardest things in a book to figure out. Uh, I started interviewing people and working my way through this story. And the central question that was intriguing to me, I mean, everybody knows the outcome. We, we know the end. But what I wanted to know was, what was the beginning? H- how did this thing start? And uh, whose idea was this in the first place to take homes and why? And that was uh, actually a really hard question to get to the bottom of, uh, because there were three central parties that wanted to take this neighborhood. There was the state of Connecticut who had a governor at the time, John Rowland, who was aggressively trying to do urban renewal plans in waterfront cities in Connecticut. Most of those cities are democratically controlled. He's a popular Republican governor, and he's getting into these democratic cities, and how is he doing this without the, the cooperation of these democratic governments? That's one issue. Number two is there's a, a, a global pharmaceutical giant, Pfizer, that is building a headquarters next door to Suzette's neighborhood. They're the second party. And then third is the New London Development Corporation. They're the ones who actually hire the people who use the bulldozers to plow the houses down. And those three parties come together, and who was first? I mean, who, who started this all? And what I discovered was that the governor wanted to go into new london but he didn't know how to get in and so he went looking for someone who could open the city up to him and go around the local government and so he used a lobbyist uh, a guy with a great rolodex who was a democrat but who would be happy to for money use his connections to help the governor get into the city and the governor gets into the city and then the question is okay how do we develop here well you know what there's a vehicle we used to have called the New London Development Agency, Development Corporation. It's not a, it's not a public uh, organization in the sense that we don't elect these people, but we appoint them. We could reactivate that organization and give them the power to do the development program that you want to do. And so, okay, well, who's going to lead it? Well, they go over to Connecticut College, and they find this flamboyant, charismatic woman named Claire Gaudiani, who's a, who's a great fundraiser, she's got power and chutzpah, and we'll put her in charge of it because she can get things done. We'll give her the reins and let her run. And, okay, so she comes on board. So now you've got the state, you've got the New London Development Corporation, but how are we going to do a big development in a city, this depressed area of New London? And she had the bright idea, and I think it was a bright idea. We need to get a Fortune 500 company to come in first because if they say yes to New London then that's like building a mall and starting with an anchor store like Macy's. Then everybody else will come. So, well, who are we going to get? Well, let's get Pfizer because they have a a facility across the river in Groton, and word is they're trying to expand. They need land. And it turned out to be true. So Claire picked up the phone because who sits on the board of directors at Connecticut College where she's the president? The president of Pfizer. And so she calls him at home. like to talk to you about something. And they have a one-on-one dialogue that starts. And she says, would you think about New London? No way. We're not going to New London. We've already got our sites. In fact, we're down to the last two. So it's too late to even think about New London. But she works them and she lobbies them and she brings them down there. And they finally make this great proposal with the governor's consent, which is we have 24 acres on the waterfront. It's environmentally toxic. But the state will clean it at their cost. And they'll give you the whole 24 acres, which are right on Long Island Sound, for a dollar. All you have to do is agree to build there. And Pfizer looks at that and says, well, that's not bad, but there's a few more things we'd like. And they're not really suggestions. They're requirements. And here are the things we need in order to do this. And, well, the the important one for this story is, because there was a bunch of them, the important one is we, we would like the 90 acres around this site to be cleared raised. Just erased. Get the eraser out and take it off the map. And we want to build new things there. Well, we don't want to build them. We want you to build them. And, and what we'd like there is we'd like a five-star hotel. we like a health club and spa. we like some biomedical research facilities. Uh, we like some office space. And we like some upscale housing. And when you think about it from Pfizer's perspective, that makes sense. I mean, if you're going to build your global research and development headquarters there, you kind of like to have a neighborhood around you that you like and that complements what you're doing. I, I understand that. So the question is, if you're the governor, are you going to say yes to that? Are you going to guarantee that you can deliver that? Well, the governors did say yes. And Pfizer said yes and signed, and off we go. And that works great for people who want to sell their land that live in that 90 acres, and some people did. Most of those people were people who owned businesses that hadn't done anything in a long time because it was industrial properties there and business zones, but there was also a neighborhood that was residential, and the neighborhood had been there over 100 years, settled by Italian immigrants, people whose father's father built those houses and had lived there, and people who were born there, people who wanted to die there. It was a great neighborhood. It wasn't dilapidated, and they didn't want to leave. But there was only one person in that neighborhood that actually had the courage to to say that to someone's face, And that was Suzette, because a lot of the people were elderly, and they use a cane to get around, and they're too shaky to even sign their name on a contract. And they really weren't equipped to fight the governor, a pharmaceutical, and a development corporation with bulldozers ready to plow houses down. And Suzette rallied this neighborhood, and as I started to learn this story, I thought, this is is terrific, because they did all the things they teach you. I, I was a politics student. And when I went to school, I mean, they taught us how you use, the, use the, gover- the democratic process. You write letters to the editor. You go to the city council, and you speak in hearings. You get petitions, and you get ready to sign them. Well, you know what? They did all that stuff. It didn't matter. None of that mattered because the fix was in. This was going to happen no matter what the people said. No matter what, it was happening. And it did happen. They started knocking houses down. And... As I reported this story, I thought, this is, this is remarkable. Because we're talking about 90 acres. And the fact is that these homeowners, they actually possessed about less than three acres of the 90 acres in question. And I, I couldn't help but think from a business standpoint. I remember in law school when we took you know, these business law classes and they talked about negotiation and compromise and efficiency and everything else. I'm thinking, wait a second here. The city has $100 million of the state's money. Actually, it was some of my money because I'm a taxpayer in Connecticut. So that's our money that they've sunk into this thing. Pfizer's got all this money into this thing. The city's got money into this thing. And they want to build all this stuff. And 87.3 acres isn't enough? They need the other 2.3? And if they can't get the 2.3, then we're going to have a fight all the way to the Supreme Court that takes seven years? It, it didn't make any sense. And so as a, as a journalist, I dug in deep to the characters and the background of who these people are. I, I, yes, I have a law degree, but honestly, there's something a lot more fascinating than just the intricacies of the law. Uh, I find eminent domain law a little little dry. When I, when I was in law school, they didn't even teach it when I was in law school. I don't think I ever remember anything from eminent domain in property law or con law when I was in law school. But what I'm interested in is why do people do the things they do? Why does someone who works at a college, a liberal arts college, that teaches people to help the poor, the underprivileged, people who don't have representation in government, why would somebody like that carry the banner that says, we need, not, we need to get these people out of their houses and knock them down? What, what makes somebody think that way? You know, wh- why did the governor think that this was a good idea? What about the guy from Pfizer who had to make the decision whether to support this plan or not? How does he think and feel about all this? Obviously, I want to know how. Why did someone like Suzette? A nurse who's never been in a courtroom before. Never testified. Never been deposed. Never been represented by a lawyer. Never been interviewed by you know, Sean Hannity and all these other shows that now suddenly are on her doorstep with cameras and lights. Why did she do this? Is she just greedy? Is she, is she just mean? Is she just mad, wants to fight just to fight? I mean, those are the, the questions you have. When you put it all together, you realize there's, there's simple reasons that people do these extraordinary things. And what I said in the introduction of the book, I, I believe to my bones, and that is that pride, pride is what this story is about. In America. This is a story about pride. And there's two kinds of pride. There's the kind of pride that a father who's proud of something his child does, that's good pride. We we all know what that pride is. It's a good thing. Suzette has pride. She has the good kind of pride. She's a person that, you know what, I made this pink house what it is. I, I sanded these floors on my hands and knees. I cleaned this place myself. I mean, my feet bled. The day I went there with sandals the first time with the real estate agent, I had to cut the briars away to get to the door to get in. I have something in this place, and so I have pride in this place, and I'm not just going to let someone come in here and take it away. That's one kind of pride. Now, here's the other kind of pride. There's the pride that is the first of the seven cardinal sins. Well, that kind of pride is oozing through this story. That's the pride that says... We're smarter than everybody else. We know what's better for you. Don't get in our way. There is no room for compromise. And when you win the case at the end of the day, and the Supreme Court says five to four, you can take these houses, that still doesn't mean you have to. It just means you can and someone without pride might have said, well, you know, we won the case. But, you know, maybe the right thing to do now is let's work with these few seven people that are left and let's, let's do this together. Instead of how soon can we get the gas in the machine and plow the houses down? That's a different kind of pride. That's the, the bad pride. This story is about pride. Last week, uh, not last week, last month, I went back there uh, for the first time since writing the book. And when I went back, I took a little tour of the neighborhood. There's nothing left now. Uh, Suzette's pink house was taken down board by board, and it's actually reconstructed in another part of the city now, but all the rest of the houses were destroyed. And I went through the neighborhood, uh, and this is all I could find. You know what these are? They don't make nails like this anymore, but these are the nails that were from underneath the pink house. It's about all that's left there. Hopefully the New London Development Corporation doesn't charge me for theft, because I guess this is their property technically, but... I collected these because uh, it struck me when I looked down on the ground and I I thought, for 100 years, people lived on these couple of streets. They didn't lock their doors. Everybody's kids knew each other. I mean, it was a real community, something in America that there isn't a lot of left today. And here was one little town that had that. And now all that's left there is this. And three years after the Supreme Court said... It's okay to knock this down because if you're going to build all those things and the city can use the revenue, that is a public benefit. So you can – it's not public use, and there is a difference. This is a public benefit, and we will allow the taking of private property if you can show a public benefit. Well, folks, it's been three years, and they haven't built anything. They haven't built a thing. They've knocked a lot of things down. But they haven't built anything. And as far as job creation, job stimulus, the only jobs that have been generated there have been for demolition crews. There has been no other workers there that have had a job. Uh, it's a dangerous, dangerous precedent. Um, I'll tell you that it was I've, – I've done eight books now in my career on all kinds of subjects similar to this. Nothing quite as powerful in my mind as this. This has been my favorite and hardest story to write. It, is, it was incredibly hard to write this story because it is a complicated, layered one with lots of people in it. Um, but, boy, is it an important one. And uh, it's been an honor, frankly, to associate with uh, Suzette, with Scott, uh, with uh, John Kramer from the Institute for Justice, and some of the other folks. I have to tell you, though, as a journalist, I really enjoyed uh, the interviews that I did with the folks from Pfizer and the folks from the New London Development Corporation, from the lawyers who argued this case on the other side, who were just as passionate as Scott Bullock will ever be, and thinking that what they did was right. Um, And and they'd be happy to tell you about why. Um, But it's been an honor for me to work on it. It's it's an important case. It really is, because as Sandra Day O'Connor said, and it's interesting to me that it's the dissent that carried the day in this case. Not the majority opinion, but the dissent. It was the last thing that Sandra Day O'Connor wrote in her distinguished career was the dissenting opinion in this case, and she made the plea at the end. She said, you know, really, what we've done here today is we've made it unsafe for every farm, for every house, and for every business. Because if you can make the argument that there's a public benefit to do this, and Justice Breyer, for the majority, said in the oral arguments, well, you pretty much can find a public benefit in just about anything, You know, $0.02 of higher tax revenue, well, that's a benefit, you know, and now there's no line. Uh, So it's important. Uh, I thank you very much for your time and look forward to to your questions. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much, Jeff. We're now going to hear from Suzette herself, Um, Suzette. Um, is um, not a uh, public speaker, she says, but she certainly is a public figure, and uh, she is going to speak very briefly, um, and uh, she has, since uh, this all began, has uh, gotten her nursing degree. She is a practicing nurse now, and um, she um, will tell you, um, I guess, that the house still exists, not where it did, but uh, please welcome Suzette Kilo.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Suzette Keelow, and the government stole my home. First, the municipal government of my hometown, New London, Connecticut stole it. Then the state of Connecticut said it was legal for them to take it. Finally, the federal government said it was constitutional to steal not only my home, but the homes of all my neighbors, and in fact, anyone's home for the purpose of economic development. Basically, what that means, if someone who can add more to the grand list of your town or city, then you and your property can be made history. Even though 40 states have passed legislation offering some protection for home and business owners, don't think your property is safe because it is not. Over 10 years ago, I was lucky enough to find a great deal on a house with a terrific view of the Thames River, and the Long Island Sound, and the Atlantic Ocean in New London, Connecticut. I spent every spare moment fixing it up and making it the kind of home I had always dreamed of. I'm sure you've heard the expression, location, location, location. Well, this was the wrong location, only I didn't know it yet. Until I picked up the paper one morning in 1998 and discovered that Pfizer Pharmaceutical was coming to town. And one of the things that Pfizer did not want, according to the Pfizer executive who just happened to be the husband of Claire Gardiani, the president of New London Development Corporation, was to look out their windows and see tenement buildings. <clears throat> Maybe we did not live in grand manners that the Pfizer, Pfizer executives lived in, but our homes were well cared for, we paid our taxes, and we lived in a neighborhood that was comfortable for us. But we weren't going to be comfortable for long. For ten long years... We fought to keep our homes, we fought the media, we fought in the media, we fought in the city council and the legislative offices, we fought in the courts, we won the support of the public, but the politicians made our lives hell. Eviction notices were posted on our doors Thanksgiving Eve. Our neighbors' homes were demolished around us. Our streets were shut down. Some of us became ill. Some of us even died. Even the air was difficult to breathe from the demolitions and the blasting around us. But we never gave up because we believed that this land was our land until the United States Supreme Court told us and the world differently. What the Supreme Court basically said was our land was only our land until someone else could make better use of it and pay more taxes. Even though we, the plaintiffs in Kilo versus New London case, lost our personal battle, the war is still being fought. As a result of the Supreme Court's unbelievable ruling, a majority of the states have passed legislation offering more protection to American property owners. Probably everyone who has ever given a speech hopes that something he or she says will be worth remembering, and I hope you remember this. If it's true that it takes an entire village to raise a child, then we and our children are in serious trouble. Although 42 states have passed laws providing more protection against the the abuse of eminent domain, there are still many places where neighborhoods are destroyed to make way for malls, hotels, and spas. And the people who suffer the most are not only the American children, but also our elderly. Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce Indian said, the white man made us many promises, but he kept only one. He said he'd take our land, and he did. This still continues. Let just be the generation, be the one to bring this terrible abuse to an end. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Suzette. We're now going to hear from the attorney who argued the case before the Supreme Court, Scott Bullock. He is a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice, where he has served since 1991. Um, He was co-counsel with Dana Berliner on the case, um, and the two of them also argued the first case to address eminent domain after Kilo was handed down, uh, the first state case, Um, before the Supreme Court of Ohio, where they achieved a resounding victory. Um, um, In 2002, uh, Scott was awarded the top civil rights prize by the state chapter of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for his work to save the land of property owners in Canton, Mississippi. Um, Scott's work uh, has appeared uh, in numerous publications, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, 60 Minutes. He's appeared on ABC's Nightly News, National Public Radio, and elsewhere. He received his law degree from the University of Pittsburgh, and before that was an economics and philosophy major at Grove City College. Please welcome Scott Bullock.
3: Thank you, Roger. Uh, it's always a great pleasure to be uh, back again at the Cato Institute and thank uh, all of you for coming out on such a uh, miserable day here in, uh, here in Washington, D.C. It's always wonderful to see Suzette appear with her uh, once again. And congratulations, Jeff, on the publication of such a wonderful and engrossing book. You know, one of the things that people always ask myself and my colleagues at the Institute for Justice is, how do you find your cases, and how do you pick the cases, which case you're going to take on when thousands of people approach you when they hear, you mean I don't have to pay my lawyer? Oh, yeah. <coughs> There's essentially three things that we look for in public interest cases. And Suzette's case and the case in Fort Trumbull had each of those probably to a greater degree than just about any of our other cases. The first thing that a good public interest case needs is sympathetic and compelling clients. We always put our client up front in our cases, and we put a human face on the vital constitutional issues that we litigate. And this is where Jeff's book really stands out. He captures very compellingly, the folks who fought this battle, ordinary Americans who never asked for this fight, who were happy leading their lives, but stood up for their own rights, answered the call, and in so doing, protected the rights of all Americans. It is people like Suzette that really embody the promises of the Constitution and give those protections life and vitality. You know, one of the things that's often overlooked in eminent domain cases is the fear that people have when confronted with the loss of their home or the loss of their livelihood. Because eminent domain, apart from perhaps putting you in jail or killing you, is about the most serious thing a government can do to its citizens. And people like Suzette endured this struggle, faced this fear, while having to deal with everything else that life throws at someone. Trouble with one's job, marital stress, aging relatives, sickness, and so on. And it's pretty frankly incredible, as this book points out, what Suzette and her neighbors had to endure while seeking vindication of their rights. It has been the joy of my career and the joy of, uh, of my colleague's career at the Institute to represent people like Suzette Kilo. Now, the second thing that every public interest case needs, in addition to having great plaintiffs, are evil villains (laughs) and terrible abuses of power. And you will certainly find that in this saga as well. And I think there are a couple of important lessons to be learned here. One, as Jeff alluded to in his remarks, is that folks can abuse rights even while they genuinely believe that they are pursuing some greater social good. And indeed, some of the worst violations of rights in human history occurred in the pursuit of supposedly more important public goals. And what the folks, I think, on the other side forgot throughout this struggle is that under our system of law, we do not and should not have an ends-justifies-the-means approach. And I think that that is the approach that they took. You know, much of the Bill of Rights is directed toward this notion. Yes, the cops have to chase after and catch the criminals, but they can't do that at any expense. They have to follow certain rules, certain guidelines. Yes, the Fifth Amendment contemplates the use of eminent domain, But those takings have to be for a public use, and just compensation must be paid. And those principles were forgot in this battle. I think it's also important to point out that terrible abuses of power can occur even though the government can follow the so-called letter of the law, that they can jump through the necessary procedural hurdles that they can satisfy each and every statutory requirement and still nevertheless engage in gross abuses of power. To give just one example of what happened in Fort Trumbull, and this is really brought out in the book, I think one of the most crushing things that the government did in Fort Trumbull is that while this battle was being waged, they insisted on tearing down all the homes in the neighborhood. Now, they had the legal right to do this. They owned the property once they were able to obtain them voluntarily or after pressuring folks. But the real goal of this, in addition to destroying the tax base at the time, uh, and it, which, uh, it, which now also uh, is let, you're left with a barren field now up there even three years after this fight. But the, the message that was sent, I think, at this point was that this is a fait accompli, that your house is next, and that there's really no point in engaging in this battle. And this demolition led, led to some of the most heart-wrenching parts of this book and led to some of the early, uh, earliest legal skirmishes we had with the city of uh, New London as well, when they would not even allow homes that were being contested in the eminent domain fight to remain standing while the court case was going on until we had an explicit court order to prevent them from demolishing the homes. Finally, in addition to having great clients and having um, uh, evil villains and terrible abuses of power, the last thing we always look for in our cases is a cutting-edge legal issue. That's why public interest law firms exist. Now, I'm not going to get into a long discussion of the legal issues that were at stake in the Fort Trumbull uh, case. I'd be happy to answer any questions uh, about that during the Q&A. And I'm also not going to spend the remainder of my time trying to convince you that eminent domain for private development is not only unconstitutional, but just flat-out wrong. You know, one time somebody asked uh, Louis Armstrong what uh, what jazz was, and he said, man, if you have to ask, you'll never know. And I sort of feel the same way when somebody asks me, well, what's wrong with the government taking Suzette Kilo's home to give to a private developer? What's wrong with taking someone's small business to put up high-end condominiums? If you have to ask, you may never, in fact, understand what is wrong with it. But I want to talk just briefly in the uh, remaining amount of time that I have as to why we got involved with the New London case and to talk a little bit more about what's happened in the wake of the case as well, which I think is, in many ways, even uh, even the more important story. The Institute for Justice got involved in the eminent domain issue back in the mid-1990s. And at that time, this issue was really considered to be a dead letter in the law. As Jeff mentioned, he didn't even study it in law school. I think we spent about 15 minutes on it in in law school. Folks considered this to really be a uh, a lost battle. But taking on difficult cases and trying to change... The climate of public opinion and the law is what public interest law is all about. So we started this campaign. Uh, My colleague Dana Berliner was instrumental in doing this. John Kramer led our public relations effort. The president of the institute provided the vision for doing this. And we selectively took on cases, targeted cases that we thought would make great tests. Uh, cases, when we tried to gradually raise awareness of this issue throughout uh, the country. And we were starting to gain traction in, in doing so. And of course, nothing put this issue more on the map than the Supreme Court at first accepting the Kilo uh, case and then handing down its narrow 5-4 to four decision. And one of the reasons why we selected the New London case is because the city of New London was engaging in the most breathtaking expansion of eminent domain power imaginable. The city of New London, of course, was not using eminent domain for traditional public use, like a road or a reservoir or a public building. They were not even relying on New London's or uh, the state of Connecticut's blight laws, its urban renewal laws, which uh, allows government to take property in so-called blighted neighborhoods. And this power was upheld uh, by the Supreme Court back in the 1950s in a series of other cases following that decision. The city of New London was saying that we can take these properties, not for traditional public use, not even because they're blighted, but because the new owners of the property can put them to more productive use. They can generate more tax revenues. They can create more jobs. They can improve the general economic climate of our community. And that is enough to justify the use of eminent domain. And we realize that if that justification is upheld, then there really are no limits on eminent domain power. Because every home would produce more tax revenue and certainly more jobs if it were a business. Every smaller business would produce more tax revenue and jobs if it were a larger business. And so it's really a vision of eminent domain without limitation whatsoever. And it's, I think, important to remember that all the government has to do is project what the job growth and the tax revenue is going to be. And that's what New London did here. They projected over a million dollars in more tax revenue a year. Uh, the creation of, I think it was, 600 to 1,200 more jobs. Now, did any of those come to pass? Absolutely not. As Jeff mentioned, the Fort Trumbull neighborhood, after the investment of close to $80 million in state money, is a barren field. No new construction whatsoever, but merely projecting the tax revenue and the job growth is enough uh, under the Supreme Court's ruling to uh, have this declared a public use under um, uh, under the Fifth Amendment. We knew this had to be stopped. So we took this on, hoping that the Supreme Court would provide at least some outer limit on the ability of governments to use eminent domain. And as we all know, in a uh, bitterly divided opinion, the Supreme Court, by a five to four vote, said that there really are no meaningful limits on the use of eminent domain, at least under the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And so, although the Kilo case ended up being a loss before the Supreme Court, it is essentially a classic example of losing the battle but winning the overall war. Four state Supreme Courts have rejected Kilo, while two others have essentially uh, said that they are going to reject Kilo in the future, or they're going to read their state constitution to provide much more meaningful protection for property owners who face eminent domain for private development. Not one state Supreme Court has accepted Kilo in the over three and a half years since the decision was handed down. This is the exact opposite of what happened with eminent domain for urban renewal back in the 1950s, where the Supreme Court upheld it, and I think it was close to 40 other state Supreme Courts interpreted their own state constitution to adopt the very broad reading of eminent domain under the federal constitution. Forty-three states have passed laws to limit uh, eminent domain now some are essentially meaningless, like ironically enough the state of connecticut 's uh, law that was uh, that was passed, but about half of them provide very strong protection for private property owners, not only with regard to economic development, but also dealing with the abuse of blight laws, which is another way that eminent domain uh, is abused for private development purposes. And virtually all of them, at the very least, provide stronger protection uh, for property owners than uh, were, uh, than, they, than the laws formerly did. The other thing that's happened uh, on this issue is that there's been a complete change in the overall climate, not only of public opinion, but the attitudes of property owners, developers, and government officials uh, as well. Property owners now feel like they have a fighting chance. They are emboldened by the public outrage about the Kelo decision, and they are fighting back against these projects throughout, uh, throughout the country. Uh, our, our organization, the Castle Coalition, uh, led by uh, Christina Walsh, uh, is working with property owners throughout the country to fight the abuse of eminent domain. And people, rather than feeling dejected by kilo, actually feel like they now can raise these issues and have a chance in fighting these, in fighting these projects. In contrast, city officials and developers in many areas are afraid to move forward because they know that public opinion is against them. Now, does that, has that stopped them in many areas? Of course not. There's too much power, money, and influence on the other side of this equation. And the battle is certainly being fought in several states throughout the country. But one of the things that Suzette and her neighbors can take great heart in is that their struggle was not in vain. The Fort Trumbull neighborhood may be gone. But the fight that was waged there has given inspiration to countless thousands of others. It has led to the passage of laws and the handing down of court decisions that were impossible, frankly, only a few years ago. And it all started with this little pink house, which is thankfully still standing in another location in New London. Uh, And it all began with the woman in that, in that house who is determined to seek justice and fight City Hall. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much, Scott. Uh, in his introductory remarks, Scott alluded to his start here at Cato. I neglected to mention in my introduction of him that he was my first intern <laughs> back in 1989. and He has gone on to great things from that. So the Cato interns who are listening, there's a future for you, too. <laughs> All right. Now we uh, want to open this up to the audience for your questions. Please uh, raise your hand. Identify yourself and any affiliation you may have to whom your question is directed And um, if you could keep it brief, that would be good as well. And wait for the microphone to come right beside you, right up there, this gentleman, right behind you. Hi, my name is Charles. Uh, This question is
1: in response to something Mr. Bullock said, but it's really open to anyone. You mentioned that it was morally wrong for the government to seize these people's houses, and I agree with you. Um, But your explanation was simply that if you didn't know why... Maybe you'll never know. I'm wondering if there is perhaps if there is an explanation for why it's morally wrong, and if anyone has a moral defense for these people's property.
0: I think that's for you, Scott.
3: <laughs> well, listen, I I, I I don't think this is the the proper place to try to uh, uh, to try to justify it. Uh, uh, you know, from from an ethical. Standpoint I, I, and what my personal ethics would, would lead to. Although I think it is safe to say that, regardless of your philosophical leanings, regardless of your religious background, there has been no more dis- universally despised Supreme Court decision than the Kelo case. And that comes from people across the country, across geographic divides, across racial divides, across philosophical and political divides. I mean, it has really been extraordinary to see this. And public polling... Definitely bears this out. Uh, typically, well over eighty percent, oftentimes over ninety percent of folks um, uh, are against the Kelo decision. Think that it was that it was wrong, and I think not only just on constitutional grounds, but it was simply wrong uh, for the government uh, to do this. And I, you don't see those numbers on uh, any other Supreme Court decision that uh, that I am aware of. So uh, I think it's uh, the universality of the opposition to this demonstrates that um, uh, that you, you know, regardless of your philosophical or moral background, you reach the conclusion that this is in fact the wrong thing for for governments to do. And and I think it's only a small exaggeration to say about the only people who are in favor of this are folks who stand to benefit from it: city officials, developers some folks in the planning uh, community. Uh, I have to throw a few law professors uh, in there uh, as well who have debated uh, throughout, uh, throughout the country and a couple of editorial boards like the Washington Post and the New York Times. However, the new headquarters for the New York Times was built on land that was taken by eminent domain. So I would also have to put them into the category of folks who stand to benefit from, uh, from eminent domain uh, as well.
0: But I think you were asking also for what why it was legally wrong, weren't you? I was asking more of the moral. Oh, more of the moral. Okay, good, good. Uh, this uh, lady right here.
2: Uh, Hi. Uh, My name is Julie Abrahams. I don't have an affiliation. Uh, My question is, um, because I don't know too, too much about this, it's a background question. Um, If there's a redevelopment, and we see redevelopment going on everywhere all over the place, Um, if there is a redevelopment uh, activity going on that's not uh, morally and legally reprehensible as in this case, um, how is it different? What is a good redevelopment uh, procedure? what happens normally when it's not objectionable. And that's my question for whoever knows. Do
0: you want to answer
1: that? Uh, I, I'm not an expert on that. I can only, I mean, I'm a, I'm a journalist who's, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I looked at other cases and other situations. And one thing that interested me is, uh, first of all, it's not new to do urban renewal. There's a lot of old cities and old neighborhoods in America and and some of them need to be reworked. And there's plenty of places where government has done this very effectively without forcing people out of their homes. And I'll give you an example of what could have been done here, and it would have worked beautifully. Uh, this neighborhood uh, had some historic homes in it. They fit the the fabric. They looked good. They were on the water. They were built to be on the water. This is a waterfront development. There's plenty of cities in America that have done waterfront redevelopments, and they've built lots of new things around old things. And they've made the old things look new uh, by incorporating them into a redevelopment plan. And that absolutely not only could have happened here but should have happened here. In fact, these guys weren't against the development plan. They wanted the, the redevelopment. They just wanted to be part of it. And there were architects, both professional and amateur, that had looked at this and said this would be a terrific project if this city would incorporate some of these old homes into the new plan. And, I, I mean, look, I can't give you a verse and chapter here, but I know from just doing simple research on this book that there are plenty of places. Baltimore is one. Providence is another. Bigger cities. Uh, there are other cities in New England that are waterfront communities that have done this very effectively. It could have been done here.
0: Um, Yes, this lady right here.
4: Thank you. I'm Rosalind Lacey McLennan. I'm a journalist, and I want to thank you, Suzette. You have been an inspiration to me. That's why I'm here today. I wanted to meet you. I'm involved in a fight that hasn't ended and I can tell you why it's morally wrong because I'm cheering on the depression. The only thing that's keeping this developer at bay is that he can't get financing to destroy our community. I mean, that's morally wrong. I shouldn't feel that way. I want him to go bankrupt. <laughs> and my question is right in line with yours. My Matra at the microphone, if the city of Gaithersburg has been, go around, not through, don't tread on us. We'll work with you, but don't destroy us. Why? Why can't they go around? Why do they have to take? They've got 180 acres worth of farmland that they bought, and they want our 5.6 acres in addition. They don't have enough. And the city doesn't want to build sidewalks, the infrastructure, and they want to take our private sidewalks. And that's what the whole dispute is about. They want our private sidewalks. It's easier to bully us. And we are 40% um, Southeast Asian community. We are a minority, and many of them had language barriers. I was the one who I've been speaking for them. I learned to be very articulate, and I am in paralegal school now. My professors tell me I could go on to University of Maryland. I will fight until Hilo versus New London is overturned at the Supreme Court level.
0: Thank you for your comment. I think Jeff touched on the reason Uh, that is behind what you're up against, that that they can't go around, namely that they are elites who think they know better than you, Uh, and once they lock their teeth onto a plan, it's like a dog locking his teeth onto the bone, and it's a matter of pride, as he said, the worst sense of pride. They will not let go, and little people must fall.
1: Roger, I was on uh, I was on with Glenn Beck yesterday doing an interview on the radio and he broadcast from uh, Rockefeller Plaza in New York and it's funny cuz when when our interview ended he then proceeded to talk about how Rockefeller acquired that land and built that very famous landmark. And it was funny because he said with all of Rockefeller's money and all of his power and all the connections he had there were two people that refused to sell and move when they wanted to do that building. One was an Irish man who had a pub on one side, and this little guy who owned a little piece on the other side. And it wasn't about money; it's not like they held out to get more. They just didn't want to go. They're still there. That's right. That's right.
0: That's a famous. Guys are still there. They built around them. This uh, lady right here.
5: Good afternoon. My name is Rochelle Moore. I'm with Nubian Enterprises. I'm a uh, journalist, uh, writer, PR firm owner. My question, I have two questions. One has to deal with the eminent domain. This is for both attorneys. But quickly, the, uh, I wanted to find out from Ms. Kilo, what was the name of the um, Indian chief that you quoted? I have it right here. I wrote down what you said, but I couldn't remember the name of the- Chief Joseph of the Nez Pierce Indians. And the other question is for both of the Esquires, both attorneys. In addition to the imminent domain issue for homeowners, have you either of you had to represent those who lost their homes in the last couple of years due to the um loan um fiasco with the um with the Fannie Mae's and all of that? Have you ever had to deal with those issues of all the thousands of people or
1: I'll go first, Scott. No, because I don't represent anybody. Your turn. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, you know, we are a constitutional law
1: shop. So we represent
3: folks who have battles with the government, directly with the government. Uh, so that's, uh, even though we do a number of other cases besides eminent domain, uh, all of those cases are when the government is acting against individual, individual citizens.
0: Um, Phil? Jeff, your um, your introduce comment yourself, about Bill. Huh? introduce yourself. Oh yes, uh, Bill Erickson, and uh, I'm with the Cato Institute. Um, your comment about how easily it would have been to restore this small community. Why did uh, Pfizer miss such an opportunity for a PR home run in corporate America that that is suffering from you know public resentment when they, at very little expense because of the land involved, could have restored this. T- Community themselves, and with such publicity that the the case got, they would have just been a wonderful corporate member of America.
1: I think that's a that's actually a great question, and uh, I can't necessarily get the definitive answer on that. But I can tell you this: that uh, the decision to move th- this was such a huge decision for Pfizer, and it was made by one man. One. The, the rest of the company at that division, they didn't want to go to New London. And they, they didn't know they were going until they woke up one day. And basically the exact quote was from the president to the guys on the real estate acquisition team was, can you guys look into this, look into New London? And they thought, are you kidding me? And pretty soon they realized, you know, the chief executive really wants to go there. And nobody resisted openly. They, they just grumbled about it. And when it was finally clear they got there, everybody thought, well, I guess this will be okay because we got the land for nothing. The state cleaned it up. We got waterfront property, and it's going to get cleaned around it. It's going to be okay. It will work. And it was working from their perspective until the Institute for Justice arrived because while these guys were doing what they were doing, they, they were kind of like gnats, you know, just flick, flip them off and get them out of the way. And then when the lawsuit arrived, I think that's when Pfizer realized. And Pfizer wasn't sued, but Pfizer realized we got a problem here, and so they, their strategy became distance. Well, this isn't really our fight. We're not. We're not a litigant. We didn't use eminent domain. This is not our land. That that's the city's business. We're, we're, their phrase was, "We are interested bystanders." That's the language that the director of public communication said. They called themselves interested bystanders, and I think their their position became as much distance as possible, because this is a nightmare, publicity-wise. Nobody figured out toward the end, and I think as the lawsuit was dragging on, that they could have come in and done exactly what you said. Um, but I think at that point, the decisions were being made in New York, not in New London, and New York's b- thing was stay a million miles away from that.
0: Besides, Bill, they didn't have to think much about public relations because they were about to introduce Pfizer or Viagra, and everything was looking up. Um, Ilya, wait for the microphone, Ilya.
6: Uh, Ilya Selman, George Mason University. Uh, I think this is a question primarily for Jeff Benedict and maybe the other panelists know. Uh, Last I heard sort of in the aftermath of QO uh, of, of the decision, uh, they had been all sorts of uh, cost overruns and delays on building anything, and that Corker and Jameson the developer who was hired to supposedly build stuff had been given a last a supposedly a last opportunity to do something or going to lose the contract right. uh, and I was wondering if you knew what happened that. did they meet that deadline or uh have they been are they now off the contract, and if so, is somebody else on it uh like is there any kind of WAN today to actually uh, do anything on WAN? Yeah, that's
1: a great question. The developer failed to meet the deadline. Actually, the deadline was extended more than once, and each time they failed to meet it. And and finally, after I think it was three times, the New London Development Corporation said, all right, enough's enough. And that was partly because they were getting public pressure. It was embarrassing. But right now, they, they don't have a developer, and it's I mean, I wasn't kidding when I went up there and said that this is all that's there. It is There is nothing there. And the shame of this is um, that there could have been a lot there. Uh, the city is in trouble right now because that, none of those acres are generating any tax revenue. So let's just say for the sake of argument that their houses were blighted. Well, at least they were paying taxes. I mean, the, the fact is now there is nothing there. And I, I would never say never, but I think it's going to be a long time before anybody builds there, because the the area has a scarlet letter. And I, I think it's just not attractive. Uh, lenders are concerned that if they put money into a project that's going to be down there, that they're going to be lumped into this thing. And so I think the city is uh, in big trouble. I think it's going to be a long time before you see anything there. And and if I were to make a prediction, I don't usually do this, but I'll bet what you ultimately see there someday is housing.
0: <laughs> that question came from Ilya Soman, George Mason University. Uh, law school who has written uh, some excellent work on this case and on uh, eminent domain generally and has written a piece for the Cato Institute on that subject. But to follow up on his question, we still haven't heard what has become of the Little Pink House. Would one of you care to... You
1: to... Suzette's too modest. <laughs> she, um, she held on to it, and that was one of the things she insisted upon in the negotiations, which... Uh, Scott was involved in but um it was saved and it was moved uh interestingly enough a gentleman who had owned the the house two times before Suzette um volunteered to give some property over that he owned he's restored over 30 historic properties in New London his name is Abner Gregory uh and he gave some land that the house could be moved to the house was taken apart board by board uh and driven across town Reconstructed, uh, he added a little bit onto it some stonework and some a basement and some other things that weren't there, but for those uh, who who saw the house before are pretty happy with the way it came out. It's a landmark now you can go, you can see it, it has a historical marker on the outside, and um, we were just in it recently it's It looks beautiful, it's terrific it's, uh, I think a, it's a nice standing monument to the fact that uh, we won yes.
2: Bought a house in Groton, Connecticut. It was. Uh, it's. I was in the Fort Trumbull neighborhood. Uh, I went directly across the river, and it's called the Fort Griswold neighborhood. Um, it's where the Revolutionary Air War was fought between the Fort Trumbull and Fort uh, Griswold neighborhoods with the British. So I'm on the other side of the river in the at the other fort.
3: Not not surprisingly. Uh, every one of the Fort Trumbull homeowners have moved out of the city of New London since this uh, since this battle uh, took place uh, and uh, may not be coming back anytime soon and that's a that's a real shame because these were folks that were dedicated to their community who really did want to stay there uh, They insisted on on th- uh, them leaving um, and the, uh, the communities surrounding New London are fortunate to have uh, citizens like Suzette and the other people up there uh, living in their communities now.
0: Okay, next question right down here.
1: Uh, Peter Whitney, uh, Duke University. Has the head of, uh, president of Connecticut University ever expressed uh, remorse for what she did? Oh, I'll take that one. Now with your book. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll take that question. That. And I'm going to answer this uh, just purely as a writer, because this was fascinating to me to interview Claire. Um, uh, I think she's every bit as interesting as as Suzette. And the reason I put the book together the way I did with these, they're sort of the two lead characters in the story, is because uh, she hasn't. Uh, She really hasn't. Uh, I think she sees herself as a victim in this, because uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, she loses her presidency at Connecticut College over this. I mean, there is a revolt on campus. Over 70% of the faculty sign a petition. It's uh, circulated publicly, and it is it is the beginning of the end of her tenure as the president of a – and I think many people predicted that she was on a path to become a president at a school like Yale or Harvard, and uh, she certainly had the uh, the smarts and the pedigree to do it. But this case, this case had a lot to do with why um, her career at Connecticut College came apart. And uh, to this day, I think she thinks that she tried to do the right thing. Uh, this, she didn't a- You know, Scott said these neighbors didn't ask to do this. Well, the fact is Claire didn't ask to become the president of the New London Development Corporation. She was recruited by the governor's office. They asked her because they saw, they referred to her privately as a vehicle. The governor's office saw her as a vehicle, and she was someone that they could use to drive this plan through the city. Now, I don't suggest she's a victim, but I'm just trying to give you some context for why she thinks the way that she does and the way she operated that she did. Um, I think it's very uh, illuminating to understand that part of the story because you have to realize why uh, would someone in that position – push as hard as she did and get up in public forums and, and try to tell someone like Suzette that, you know, you really need to just kind of get out of the way and let us do the greater good here. And she really thought she was and still does.
0: You, um, There's an element you haven't brought out yet, and that's the politics of it, the Republican governor. The Democrats in New London.
1: Would you yeah. say a little bit about that? There's no city. I'm a, I'm a Connecticut boy here, you know, born and raised there, and, and I even ran for uh, office in Connecticut. So the, the political part of the story intrigued me, and that's one of the reasons it's as strong in the book as it is. But there's no city that votes more Democratic in Connecticut than New London. Uh, if you're a Republican, you just might as well not even run. Uh, it is it is that dominated by Democrats, and the local government reflects that. And Governor <laughs> Rowland had been, uh, he was immensely popular in Connecticut, and uh, he's not supposed to be. You know, this is a blue state. And he was on track to maybe get a cabinet position and all this other stuff. And the one thing he really wanted was to show that he could he could do it in New London. And that there's a little bit of that pride factor here in trying to make, you know, shoehorn this plan through. And, you know, all those Democrats, those local guys that have been beating me up for the last four years, well, I'll, I'll tell you what we're going to do with those folks. We're, just, we're not going to drive over them. We're just going to go around them. Instead of using the local apparatus that's there, we're not going to do that. We're going to, we're going to get our own development corporation. We're going to give them the money. We're going to tell them what to do. And they're going to do it. And that's the way this – if you're looking for the, the seeds of problems – the seeds were sown long before Suzette picked up the paper and read that Pfizer was coming. Certainly, years before the Institute for Justice read about this case. The seeds were sown in the very, very beginning when when the people are sitting in the governor's office figuring out how do how do we get around the local government. That's how it started.
0: Hmm. Sammy, we got a
1: question. Uh, yes, you've uh, mentioned identify
0: yours.
3: Oh, sorry, uh, Charles Rice. I'm a freelancer here in in Washington. I. <clears throat> uh, this is for the, the panel generally. It's been mentioned that in the wake of Kilo, uh, about 43 states enacted uh, stronger protections for uh, uh, for private property against eminent domain. And it was also mentioned that only about half of those are really uh, effective uh, protections or are, are as strong as they ought to be. Uh, where are the best places to live if you don't want your stuff taken away? <laughs> well, I, I'll just—I'll just you—you I'll just, you can look on our website. Uh, we have a we have a state-by-state breakdown uh, as to uh, as to which states uh, have passed the most effective reforms, which states have passed mediocre reforms, which states have passed no reform. Um, And it's interesting, uh, though, to see the dynamic, even in a state like New Jersey, which has horrible eminent domain uh, problems, as one of the worst abusers of of eminent domain, the state legislature, despite the introduction of numerous bills, has done absolutely nothing. Uh, And uh, uh, what you've, you've seen there, though, is that the state courts have stepped up, and they have started providing greater protections and recognizing greater protections for property owners. So you've seen this uh, sort of revolution in the courts um, where property owners, again, are given are given a fighting chance after years of, uh, of courts neglecting this area, rubber stamping whatever the governments uh, wanted, uh, wanted to do. Uh, the interesting dynamic, of course, uh, in, in a lot of these battles is the fact that if you look at the polling on this, you think the numbers would be overwhelming, that uh, uh, the, the numbers are overwhelming. So that these things would pass very easily that uh, uh, that there wouldn't be any problem, uh, there has been a huge problem, especially in states where uh, uh, the the power is is abused uh, to a large extent because of the power of the folks on the other side. These are people who Know the state legislators, walk the the, the, the halls of of the uh, state capitals, um, and they have fought very tenaciously and in places like New Jersey, very effectively to kill any attempt at uh, any attempt at reform. And even in states where this has been passed, there's been a real battle uh, on the on, on between uh, homeowners and small business owners and uh, and the other side in trying to get these uh, these legislative. Um, accomplishments past.
0: This gentleman right down here, please.
6: Good afternoon. My name is Todd Wiggins. I write about urban planning. I'm here in D.C., and um, I often put blogs or launch blogs on various sites, including YouTube. I have a a couple of quick questions. I wanted to find out, first of all, as sort of a side note, has anyone here seen the classic Warner Brothers cartoon, where Bugs Bunny represents the little guy who's got his rabbit hole in a certain place, and they want to come through and build a high highway, and he ends up winning out due to you know his his um, smarts and understanding of the system. Has that ever been? Um, I don't use as an example of how the <laughs> man can overcome Big Brother, so to speak. The second question I wanted to ask you, which is not necessarily related to Ms. Kayla, but I, first of all, I want to thank thank Ms. Kayla for getting up and making that presentation. That was very heartwarming. I think of you almost as the Rosa Parks of community planning, in a sense, for, for that presentation. I wanted to ask you, Mr. Bullock, uh, are you familiar with what the Department of Homeland Security is about to do here in Washington, D.C.? In that they are about to consolidate to uh, the St. Eve's or St. Elizabeth's um, area, which was considered to be neglected, is in Anacostia. It's a historic site. Uh, The National Preservation uh, People, uh, National Council for Preservation, I believe it is, uh, Historic Preservation has cited it as a historic area, and they're concerned that uh, there might be some uh, if effect on those buildings if Homeland Security moves there. They, they have as many as 14,000 people that they're talking about bringing there, and they have to build you know, a new highway structure and so on. Do you think that that's, or do you have any opinion on whether that is the right thing to do, being that there has obviously been very little resistance in Antiochstia to that consolidation move?
3: Right. Well, I made a note to myself to cite Bugs Bunny in uh, in future <laughs> court cases that uh, that, we're, that we're involved in. Um, but with regard to uh, the Homeland Security situation, I'm not aware of that. I've, I've heard of them doing that. I'm not uh, aware if they're talking about using eminent domain uh, to uh, to take any of the properties. I think they might be trying to work out some type of agreement with St. Elizabeth's. Of course, if it was a public facility, that would be a traditional use of eminent domain, where the government uh, would actually own and operate a government facility there. So the Constitution does contemplate that type of, that type of use. But one of the things I think it's important to, uh, to mention, and something that hopefully will again be revitalized in the law, is that there is a doctrine in takings law that uh, says that even if it is for a public use, um, like a road or a public facility, uh, that the takings have to be necessary, the government cannot take any more land than is necessary to accomplish the uh, public purpose or public or public use. And that, like the public use provision of the Constitution, unfortunately over the past 50 years has been watered down, hasn't been given much effect. Um, but there has been at least some court cases recently that have looked at revitalizing that doctrine – and, uh, and making the government prove that the takings are actually necessary, even in um, uh, the accomplishment of a, of a so-called uh, of a traditional public use. I'd like to see that doctrine uh, restored. Some governments do respect it, try to work with property owners, try to go around property, uh, property owners, especially if it's residences or, or small businesses. Um, and if they refuse to do so, it would be great to see courts take this doctrine uh, more seriously once again.
0: Yeah, and I think it needs to be said, too, that even in the uh, traditional uh, legitimate uses of eminent domain for a public use, uh, it still is problematic because what you've got is what was called in the 17th and 18th centuries uh, a despotic power because you're forcing the person to give up his or her property for a road, a school, a fort, whatever the case may be. And you're doing it because it is for a public use, and you're supposedly paying just compensation, but rarely does the owner ever get just compensation. The measure today of just compensation is market value, which, of course, is not the true... Value Because if it were, the person would sell willingly. The fact that the person isn't selling at market value tells you that it's worth more to him than it is uh, to, to give it up for that value. But even in those legitimate cases is problematic. When you move over from there to the cases where you're not transferring it for a public use, but for a mere public benefit, which, of course, anything can satisfy a public benefit, then you're really getting beyond just the uh, despotic power. You're getting over to a draconian use of eminent domain, which is really illegitimate under a proper reading of the Takings Clause, which the court has not given us. Um, Let's take one or two more questions. Uh, uh, This lady right here. I uh, know the other end
5: oh, I'm Phyllis Myers a planning consultant I'm interested in the uh, amazing public response to this um, uh, to the kilo decision and wondered whether its force surprised even you, when you if you would talk a little bit more about the uh, communication strategies that you planned before the decision you were certainly ready amazingly ready to talk to the press and to get, you know, and how much of that was spontaneous, how much of it was the result of good planning.
3: Well, uh, we of course, the communication
0: strategy should be discussed by John Kramer, uh, <laughs> who is the genius behind it, but he's not talking because, <laughs>
3: because of course. I always speak for Kramer. It's a <laughs>
0: available product.
3: Well, it, it is something that um, that was led uh, by, by John, and it's something that really so many folks at the Institute um, were a part of in both designing and then implementing uh, I- I- as well. Um, and we were ready, you know, regardless of what had happened. I I thought it was going to be a very narrow decision. I thought it was probably going to be five to four. Of course, I was hoping that it would be five to four the other way, uh, but I thought it would, would probably be that um, e- either way. Um, and uh, and of course, it was very discouraging when the court handed <laughs> down the opinion. Uh, but we, um, after being uh, you know depressed for about uh, thirty seconds, knew we had to spring into action. Uh, one of the things that Dana, my colleague, uh, mentions that was one of our first things that really emboldened us was looking at. Um, a uh, instant poll i think it was on a, on msnbc uh, after an hour or two after the decision was handed down uh tens of thousands of people had already responded uh, uh, of course these things are are not scientifically accurate but i think the the poll at that point was about 98% against uh, the key load decision, and we knew what the backlash like uh, was was going to be. And what we decided to do um, was that, uh, especially in reading Justice O'Connor's dissent, and in um, uh, in seeing how the issues were framed, that we put together immediately um, a uh, a campaign called "Hands Off My Home." Uh, we devoted uh, three million dollars of our budget uh, to fighting back. Uh, against the decision and did uh, a number of different things, not only that we traditionally do, like file more cases and sue more city officials and and raise awareness through the media, uh, we also got involved in a lot of legislative battles uh, as well, knowing there was a real opportunity after years of legislatures doing absolutely nothing to change the law uh, in this area. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say I was a registered lobbyist in about a dozen states, I I, I think. My colleagues were also uh, lobbyists uh, registered in other states, and took um, a, a really, um, a lot of steps to try to counteract this uh, uh, decision. Um, it, but I should also mention it wasn't just us, though. Two ordinary citizens were emboldened by this. They rose up. They demanded changes in their in their state legislature. They worked with us and, and with other groups to try to counteract uh, this. But um, uh, it is, you know, one of the things I was worried about in the Kelo case is that The decision, because it was so narrow, if it would have gone the other way, I was concerned that if we would have won, everybody would have thought the problem was solved, that, you know, people could go on and that, um, great, you know, the the folks in New London won, um, but the decision, because it was so narrow, it probably would have been tied so closely to the facts of the case that lawyers could have distinguished the case away, as they always like to do. And you would not have had the public awareness and the public opposition uh, about about this case. So, um, so that was the fear uh, of a loss that we knew we still had a lot of work to do, regardless of uh, the outcome that uh, uh, that uh, that happened.
1: Hey, Roger. If I could just quickly say too, the, as a journalist, that was one of my the questions that was kind of burning me was exactly what you asked, and uh, one of the things that got the lawyers on the other side to use four letter words was this the actions of the Institute for Justice outside the courtroom. And uh, I remember every time I'd interview them, they'd say, well, we do our business in the courtroom, you know, and good lawyers do that. And we don't like all this foolishness that's going on in the media. And, you know, reporters kept calling up and beating up the lawyers that represented New London. And I... I think it's uh, one of the things that distinguishes the, the Institute for Justice and it had a lot to do with the way this case went is that they put a huge emphasis on public education. It's not just what we do in the courtroom which is seen by judges and a few people who sit there, but all the rest of us who don't necessarily have access to the courts or the briefs or the time. They do this enormous outreach and That was very important here. I mean, you had a perfect storm. You had a case that just resonated with people because it's like a kick in the gut when you hear the decision. You don't have to be a lawyer to understand there's something wrong here. This just doesn't sound right. It doesn't pass a smell test. But if it had just stopped there, you just have a lot of angry people who spout off for a few days and then life goes on. And the idea here is that the lawsuit was over, but now we do public outreach and public education. And you can't underestimate the value of having some people who know how to do communications. And, you know, I'm not trying to pat people on the back, but I I, I spent some serious time on that in the book because I think it had a lot to do with why the the campaign became what it was and why the states did what it did. The Institute for Justice had a big role in that, and the fact that they had – People like Suzette who were willing to continue after it looked like the scoreboard said there's no time left on the clock. Game's over. You lost. And they said, well, we didn't lose, and they that's why it is where it is today.
0: Scott admitted you knew it had the potential. You did yes, <laughs> uh, absolutely. Okay. Listen, uh, we're going to break for lunch now. First of all, though, I want to make sure that you understand the book is for sale. It has discount. You can have it signed by the author and by Suzette herself. Uh, the Publishers Weekly blurb, I think, says it all. Passionate, a page turner with conscience, will leave readers indignant and inspired. Thank you very much, and please thank the speakers here today.